Hey, it's Alexis Asadi, and welcome to episode 15 of Income Investing, a show that explores different investments that produce income and or dividends. If you're joining us for the first time, Income Investing is published every Wednesday morning, usually at around 10 a.m. Pacific. We look at all sorts of income-producing investments, like real estate investment trusts, direct mortgage lending, mortgage funds, credit funds, royalty funds, peer-to-peer lending, and real estate crowdfunding. I try to build each episode on the backs of the prior ones, so don't hesitate to travel back in time and listen to the older shows. Also, in case you haven't already, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and also on Google Play. So last week, we started to talk about the debt markets. This is a space that's really important for income investors to learn about. Right now, we're talking about the nuts and bolts of mortgage lending directly from the lender's perspective. This information will pave the way for us to explore mortgage funds and basically all credit funds. It'll also be valuable for when we get to bonds and to debentures. Now, I know we're starting to get a little bit technical, so feel free to ask questions or to request that I revisit or clarify a topic. You can do so, as always, at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. Okay, so let's get to a question from one of our listeners. This time, it's from Shauna, who wanted to know whether the borrower has to consent to having their debts sold off to another investor. This is a great question. So, in last week's episode, we discussed how lenders can manage liquidity risk. We saw that they can sell their loan contracts to other investors thus allowing them to raise cash if they need it. This can be done with loans of all sorts, whether they're mortgage loans, auto loans, credit card agreements, timeshare financing agreements, and any sort of consumer loan. Basically, if you lend money to someone and there's a contract that proves it, you can then sell that contract to someone else. The contract is an asset and is therefore transferable. To Shauna's question, if a lender makes a loan and then later sells the contract to another investor, does the lender have to get the borrower's consent first? What if there's an immediate repayment clause? Couldn't the new investor exercise it and foreclose on the debt as soon as it takes possession of the contract? That would expose the borrower to a lot of risk that he didn't sign up for. After all, there are people who are in the business of calling in loans just so that they can foreclose. It's predatory, but it's usually legal, so you could see why a borrower might be concerned. Now, keep in mind that I'm not a lawyer and that the laws can vary per jurisdiction, but here's my understanding. Shauna, a lot of it depends on the contract. Most loan agreements have an assignment clause, which allows the lender to transfer the contract. For example, Pacific Income often has a clause in its promissory notes that says, the lender may sell or transfer this note without the borrower's consent. So in that case, we wouldn't need the borrower's permission. However, I asked one of our lawyers, and he told me that he has seen a court in Canada cancel the transfer if you don't tell the borrower about it. So you should at least inform the borrower that you're going to sell the debt to a third party. 
There was a case in 2010 in New York where a Mexican cable and telecom company actually stopped J.P. Morgan Chase Bank from selling its debt facility. But when you look deeper into the transaction, there were a few factors that caused the court to side with the borrower. It gets a little bit complicated, but basically the contract required the bank to get consent before transferring it. The telecom company didn't consent. So instead, the bank allowed other investors to participate in the proceeds of the loan. They gave one investor, who happened to be a competitor of the telecom company, a 90% stake in the contract, along with other unusually favorable terms. So it kind of looked like the bank was trying to pull a fast one on the telecom company. But what if there's nothing in the contract that mentions selling or transferring it? Can it still be sold without the borrower's consent? As I understand it, a borrower can try to block the sale if they feel that it would be damaging financially or if it would violate their privacy rights. For instance, they could go to court and apply for an injunction. But I don't know how common it is for major loan transactions to not have some sort of assignment clause in the agreement. It's a pretty important thing to include. So Shauna, the short answer is that most contracts will specifically address the transferability issue. But there may be other factors, including jurisdictional legislation and the court's interpretation of it that could impact the transaction. So if you ever plan to buy or sell a loan contract, you'll definitely want to talk to a lawyer first. Okay, so before we talk more about the debt markets, I want to quickly address some news from last week. On Wednesday, the U.S. Federal Reserve announced that it would raise interest rates from 1.75% to 2%. The following day, the European Central Bank said that it would end its 30 billion euro per month bond-buying program this December. I'm going to do an entire episode on central banks and how they affect income investors at a later date. For now, I just want to point out a couple of things. First, these events are generally viewed as positive because they indicate a healthy economy. So that's good news for all of us. Second, interest rate hikes often cause income-producing assets, like bonds and REITs, to temporarily fall in value. That can lead to buying opportunities. A lot of the times, people oversell when these announcements come out, so I'll definitely be keeping my eyes peeled for deals. And third, loans of all sorts may soon come with higher interest rates. For consumers, that could mean more expensive credit cards, mortgages, lines of credit, and auto loans. For investors, like funds, financing companies, and private lenders, it could mean higher income. So let's briefly recap some of the earlier episodes of income investing. We're currently on the topic of mortgage lending. This is the practice of giving a loan and securing it with a mortgage on real estate. The lender earns income by charging interest, fees, and penalties on the loan, and is usually reimbursed for any legal fees that he incurs from the deal. If the borrower defaults on his loan payments or otherwise violates the contract, the lender can demand immediate repayment of the loan. In the worst-case scenario, he can foreclose on the property in order to recoup his funds. Foreclosure is the process of going to court in order to force the sale of the borrower's real estate. While mortgage loans can be good income-producing assets, they do have risks. We talked about some of the main ones in episode 12. The most obvious risk is default risk, where the borrower stops making payments. 
There's also origination risk, which is what happens when the deal implodes and causes the lender to lose money without even making a loan. There are tools to manage these risks, which we discussed in episode 13. One of those tools is to monitor the loan-to-value ratio, or LTV, of the property that will be used as collateral. LTV is a ratio that expresses how much debt a piece of real estate has when compared to its value. For example, a $100,000 property with a $70,000 mortgage on it would have an LTV of 70%. If it was sold, 70% of the proceeds would go to the lender. The remainder would be kept by the property owner. Another risk of mortgage loans and lending in general is liquidity. They aren't like stocks, which can be bought and sold with just the click of a button. If you can't sell the loan, you'll be stuck in the deal at least until the maturity date. However, larger lenders will often have less exposure to liquidity risk. They have the resources and the connections to sell their loans in the debt market. The debt market is not always a formal place. It can be comprised of two companies who are buying and selling a loan from each other in a private transaction. If you sell a loan to me, we have created a debt market together. But there are formal and regulated exchanges too, which are similar to stock markets. So investors can log into their brokerage accounts and buy or sell contracts that are trading on those markets. And this is where we are today. Now, on its face, the debt markets can seem pretty complicated. I remember that it took me a long time to wrap my head around them. If you feel a little bit lost or overwhelmed, that's perfectly normal. I'm going to break this down into bite-sized chunks so that it's easy to follow. You'll eventually find that it really isn't that complex. It's going to get a little bit heavy for the next 5 or 10 minutes, but stick with me. I'm later going to tie it into a real estate example that'll make a lot more sense. We're then going to conclude by pointing out another advantage of the debt market beyond providing liquidity to lenders. As you already know, mortgage loans are given after the borrower signs a contract, like a promissory note or a loan agreement. These contracts can be bought and sold, thus providing liquidity to the investment. Last week, we used the example of an investment fund called ABC Mortgage Fund, which needed cash. As such, it hired a broker to sell its promissory notes with a total principal value of $20 million to other investors. The fund therefore raised the capital that it needed. The investors took possession of a big stack of mortgage contracts from which they could earn monthly income. And the broker earned a juicy commission for completing the transaction. It was a win-win-win scenario. Now, you'll remember that the investors in this transaction bought the promissory notes for $21 million. But why would they pay that much if the contracts were only worth $20 million? The first thing to know is that this is the wrong question. In fact, the promissory notes were worth more than $20 million. They had a principal value of $20 million, meaning that that's how much the fund loaned out. Assuming there are no defaults, the borrowers will have to pay that back. However, the borrowers will also have to pay interest, and that's the key here. Let's say that the loans had a 10-year term and an annual interest rate of 11%. That means they generate over $2.3 million in revenue each year. If ABC Mortgage Funds sold the loans to investors seven years after they were made, 
the investors would still enjoy three years of interest payments from them. That would be almost $7 million of income. So the investors paid $21 million for a bunch of promissory notes. In three years, they're going to get $20 million back from the borrowers because that's when the principal is due. During that period, they're going to earn $7 million from interest payments. That means that when all is said and done, they'll make a $6 million profit. That's a total return of 29%, or 9.5% per year. All of a sudden, it doesn't look like such a bad deal. You can imagine a scenario where other investors wanted to buy these contracts. They might offer $22 or $23 million for them. The value of the promissory notes would increase if there was a lot of demand. The broker would presumably sell them to the highest bidder. This gives rise to a few terms that will be especially important once we start talking about bonds. The principal value of the promissory notes was $20 million. In the debt market, this is also called the face value or the par value. The interest rate of the promissory notes was 11% per year. In the debt market, this is known as the coupon rate. Since the investors bought the notes for $21 million, they paid a million dollars above the face value. As such, while they earned income from an asset that paid 11%, they actually only made 9.5% per year when you adjusted for the fact that they paid a million dollars more than the principal. This is what's called the yield. It reflects the investor's return. So the promissory notes had a face value or a par value of $20 million. They came with an 11% coupon, and the investors earned a 9.5% yield. Now, let's say that after a year, the investors wanted to sell off the loans. There is still another two years' worth of interest that another buyer could collect. Instead of doing it through a private sale like the way ABC Mortgage Fund did, the investors hire a broker to list the promissory notes on a publicly traded exchange. As such, millions of people could now buy the contracts. If there's a high demand for the promissory notes, their value will increase. Just like if there are a lot of people bidding for a piece of real estate, it'll become worth more. But as the notes become more valuable, the amount of income that the buyers could earn will dip. They'll still own an asset that pays 11% per year, but it's all relative to how much they paid for it. So their yield might only be 7 or 8% if they paid well above the par value. However, if the market wasn't interested in the promissory notes, their value would go down. As such, investors might buy $20 million worth of promissory notes for only $18 million. They would therefore earn a yield of more than 11% when you adjusted for the fact that they underpaid for the asset. And if they hold the notes to maturity, they'd get a nice $2 million capital gain when the borrowers pay back the principal. Now, there are a lot of factors that can determine whether the promissory notes would go up or down in value. For example, if the investors were worried that the loans had a high default risk, they might want to pay less than the face value. Or perhaps the markets are so good that earning 11% is not very enticing. We're going to get into that a little bit more next week. For now, I just want you to remember a few things. First, loans can be sold. We already know that. Second, they are no different than any other asset. The price at which they are sold will depend on how attractive they are to buyers. 
Third, the principal amount of the loan is also called the par value or the face value. Fourth, the interest rate on the loan is also called a coupon. The only person who ever earns the coupon is the initial lender. And fifth, if that lender sells the loan, he might do so at a higher or a lower price than the face value. The new owner would earn a profit that's relative to how much they paid for the loan. Their return is therefore called the yield. This concept can apply to any sort of investment that pays income or dividends. For instance, let's say that I own a house worth $100,000. I rent it to a tenant and earn an annual profit of $5,000 from the rental income. Therefore, I'm earning income at a rate of 5% per year. I paid $100,000 for the asset, and I'm earning $5,000 on my money annually. If I sell you the house for $200,000, assuming you don't raise the rent, you're still going to earn a profit of $5,000 per year from the tenant. However, you're only getting 2.5% on your money because you paid twice what the house was worth. As such, if we want to use debt market terms to describe this scenario, the face value of the house is $100,000. The coupon is 5%. The yield is 2.5%. I earn the coupon because I'm the initial owner. You earn the yield because you bought the house from me. If you convince me to sell the house for $50,000, your yield would be 10%. You'd be making $5,000 per year of rental income, but you only paid $50,000 for it. Again, the face value was $100,000, the coupon was 5%, the yield is 10%. It's higher now because you bought the asset for a more attractive price. Like I said earlier, if this is confusing, I totally get it. Just listen to this episode a couple of times. It'll make sense. If you want me to re-clarify, just let me know at alexisasadi.net slash podcast. All right, so let's take a quick minute to cool off and hear from our sponsor. This episode of Income Investing is sponsored by Pacific Income. Pacific Income is a Vancouver-based lender that provides up to $250,000 to entrepreneurs and real estate investors in Canada and in the U.S. Whether you need a loan so that you can renovate a property and flip it, or because you want to hire more employees for your company, or countless other reasons, we can be the best partner for you. You can visit us online at packincome.com. That's P-A-C-Income.com. So let's step away for a moment and look at the bigger picture. We already know that the debt markets give lenders liquidity because it allows them to sell their loans. But the markets also provide the opportunity for investors to buy those loans and resell them for an even higher price. As such, you can buy income-producing assets like mortgage loans without even caring about their income. You can treat them like any other investment and try to sell them for a profit. That's what a lot of mortgage funds and credit funds do. They don't always invest in loans to earn revenue. If the contracts can fluctuate in price, then that means there's room to buy low and sell high. Thus far, we've only discussed buying and selling debts that are performing. But what if the borrower stopped making interest payments and is therefore in default? Say, for instance, that he bought a television on a payment plan and then he didn't complete his payments. Can you still sell that debt? Why would an investor want to buy an asset that isn't doing anything? Wouldn't it be a waste of money? In most cases, non-performing debts would be sold at well below their face value, 
investors probably wouldn't be too interested because of how risky the asset has become. Therefore, the price goes down. For example, say MasterCard has a million dollars in unpaid credit cards that it can't collect on. Instead of losing a million dollars, it might hire a broker to sell the credit card agreements. The best offer that the broker finds is an investor willing to pay $50,000. MasterCard accepts it because at least it won't take a total loss. That investor could then try to recoup the value of those debts, either by hiring collections agencies, sending letters and notices, filing lawsuits, or otherwise. Even if the investor recovers just 20% of the debts, he still makes $200,000. The comedian John Oliver has a great episode about this. You can find it on YouTube if you search for debt buyers. It's a pretty grimy business, but it does give liquidity to lenders. In fact, there's a good chance that if you've ever gotten a call from a collections agency, your debt has already been sold to someone else. I get phone calls from them all the time because I keep forgetting to pay my parking tickets. I know that whoever is calling me to pay a $30 ticket likely bought my debt for $3. The company probably paid $0.10 on the dollar for $500,000 worth of parking tickets. They just need a small portion of people to pay up in order to make it worthwhile. Now, this was a pretty technical episode, so I'm going to leave it there for now. As I alluded to earlier on, next week we're going to look at central banks and interest rates. What is the Federal Reserve? What's a central bank? What do things like quantitative easing and bond buying programs mean? How do their actions affect the price of loan contracts? And of course, how does all of this impact income-oriented investors like you and me? Until next Wednesday, please visit alexisasadi.net and download my free ebook, The Foundations of Investing. It's about 90 pages long and is intended to help investors understand some pretty key topics. I've also included chapter quizzes to test your knowledge as you advance through it. Thanks for having me in your home, office, car, headphones, or wherever else you're listening from. I'll see you in a few days.